Amen. Well, good morning. Good morning. Man, we got a full house. It's good to see happy faces the Sunday after Thanksgiving with family. Amen. <laughs> it's been a good week. I pray that uh, the Lord has blessed you as you have celebrated with your family and as you have worshiped the Lord this week and giving thanks. Uh, Wednesday night was just a wonderful prayer meeting and uh, just a great time just to sing, but to give thanks to the Lord and to pray together. And um, I pray, I just, I just am glad that the Lord has given us the privilege of being here together. Amen. 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 Well, God bless everyone. This morning is the first Sunday of Advent. This is a season of the Christian calendar where we pause um, and we remember and we reflect upon the, the anticipation of salvation and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Christmas will be here before you know it. And whether uh, we prepare or not, it's going to be here. Uh, this is the season of the year at the end of the year where most, most people will, will, wipe, will wind down the year. And, but sometimes we get caught up in the busyness. And this Christmas season, this first Sunday morning of worship of the Advent season, this is the beginning of what the church traditionally sees as a remembrance of anticipation. Anticipation. You know, we teach our children to anticipate and become excited for Christmas morning or some families Christmas Eve, night, whatever your, tr- your tradition is. And the weeks that follow and lead to Christmas Eve on December 24th are weeks that, that will shape our thoughts to anticipate the hope of salvation in Jesus Christ. That's what this season is. The hope of salvation that only Jesus Christ himself can bring. Now, now the Latin root of, of Advent is the word Adventus, which literally means a coming or an approach, an arrival. And this season of anticipation really has two meanings. It's both the hope of Christ's birth, but also the hope of Christ's return. We know that he will come back. Amen? It has two meanings. But the secularization of this season, we're all familiar with how Christmas has become a commercial enterprise. It has caused the church to forget that Advent is about the longing for the salvation that Christ can bring to our fallen and sinful state. That's what we are. Instead, what happens is Satan causes us to busy ourselves with the materialism of gifts rather than focusing on the one who gives. The deceiver's tactics have never changed since the beginning of his interaction with us. We human beings, we are creatures of the Imago Dei, the image of God. The first man and the first woman were lulled into a lie, just as the church today, we are often lulled into the lie that Christmas is about busyness and planning and hosting and the ripping of paper and boxes, um, finding the right gift. Instead of anticipating Christ, let's just be honest, we anticipate the credit card bills. Instead of longing for God's promise, we long for our families to go back home so we can get back to normal. We're laughing because it's true. It's a busy season. And this is, I think, unfortunately, the tactic of the devil to cause us not to focus on what we are called to focus on, which is 
anticipating the coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the focus for the church. Nothing more, nothing less. And so today is the first Sunday of Advent. And it is the season of Christmas hymns and Christmas-themed sermons and even Christmas-themed Bible studies, and we shift our attention this time of year. But instead of reading the nativity narratives today, we, a lot of times we focus on the, the narratives of Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel of Christ's birth. Instead, there is another passage of Scripture that I think is truly the biblical text of the first Christmas sermon. And that's what we're going to look at today. In order to understand biblical hope, and today, the first Sunday of Advent, we focus on hope. That's the theme of the day, hope. And to understand what biblical hope is, I think we have to begin with the origin of our need for hope. So let us read a biblical text of the very first sermon about Christ and humanity's need for an offspring or a seed to come, one that is promised by God, our Creator. There's no need to stand today. We're not going to stand for the passage because it's a lengthy passage. Uh, After we read today's passage in Genesis chapter 3, We'll then take a walk through the prophets and then through the apostles of the New Testament. And I think we're going to see the connection to the very first Christmas sermon that was spoken by our God creator in Genesis chapter 3. Turn with me to Genesis 3, beginning in verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to me uh, to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. This is the first Christmas sermon. Let's pray. Father God Almighty, we pray this morning that you would speak to us in your word. And I pray, God, that you would be in this place with us, that your presence would fill us with your warmth 
and your embrace and your grace and your love. As we read this text this morning, we read how our state of sin began. Began with a deception. Began with an evil that was entered into this world that then distorted what you created as good. But God, even, even as you curse Adam and Eve and the serpent, you speak words of hope. And that's an amazing truth that we need to hear today. Hope is the focus of your gospel, your good news. And oh, Lord, we need more hope today than ever. And I pray, God, that you would speak to us now and that you would comfort us, but encourage us, cause us to hope and anticipate your love and your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. This passage that we read, this introduction into what we call original sin, this is what happened after Adam and Eve listened to the serpent. Genesis chapter 3 tells us the origin of our state. And when we read God's reaction to this, this fall of man and woman, when we read his reaction to them and the curse that he gives to the serpent and the curse that he gives to the woman and the curse that he gives to the man, what we are seeing is the first proclamation of the gospel in the midst of the curse. This passage, particularly Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, has been called the proto-evangelion, if you're taking notes. A big word meaning the first gospel message. The very first time that Christ is mentioned in Scripture is right here. Did y'all pick up on it? This is why this is the first sermon of Advent. This is the first sermon of Christ and the hope that only he can bring. Yes, the passages of Matthew and the passages in Luke that tell of the birth of our Savior are glorious and beautiful, and we will be focusing on them this season as well. But we cannot forget where it all began. Without understanding the fall of man, And without understanding God's righteous wrath and curse, while he also blessed and promised hope in the midst of it, we will never understand why we worship Christ this season. Instead, what we will do is we will fall into a, into the trap that the devil has given us, a deception that we are our own gods. The beginning of the relationship between God and the first man and the first woman, if we go back a little bit, we have to look at Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, that kind of helps us understand what happened in Genesis chapter 3. When we look here at Genesis chapter 2, God establishes a temple in the midst of the earth. That's what the Garden of Eden was. It was a place that God established, a place that will focus on the worship of Him as the Creator. The Garden of Eden was God's first temple. And what does he place within the garden? A man, Adam, made in his image. A place that will reflect God's sovereignty. A place that will reflect God's supremacy in a world 
that when we look at Genesis chapter 2, verses 5 and 8, the world had not yet seen the first vegetation or the first plant life. And we read in Genesis chapter 2, verse 8, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And then when you drop down to Genesis 2, verse 15, we read, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to do what? To work it and to keep it. We have to understand exactly God's purpose and his design of creation to understand the fall. We have to lay the groundwork of humanity's created purpose before we can see the need for a covenant of redemption and, and a promise of hope that comes later in Genesis 3. You ever understand, have you ever pondered why it is that God had made us? Why does, why does, why has God made humanity? Why is he made man and why is he made woman? We see here in Genesis 2, why? God created in the midst of his creation a beautiful place to reflect his glory. You and I were made for that purpose. We were made to reflect God's glory here in this world. We were made in the Imago Dei. We carry his image with us. Even as we are sinners, that aspect of who we are has not changed. And God has created us for one purpose. And I'm going to borrow from Mike. We are in God's theater of glory. This last week, you may have had drama in your home. Yet Mike said, we didn't have drama, we had theater. <laughs> and does that not sound like our world? Do we live in a world of drama? Or do we live in a world of theater? God really designed us to be in the theater of His glory to reflect who He is. We have to understand that in order to understand the need for hope here. The design and the purpose of the first man was to tend and to care for the temple of God, the garden. Man was made in His image. And, and really think about it, we are the only creature to reflect God's image in the cosmos. We're it. Nothing else that is created does this. We are the only creation of God that does that. We are the only creature to reflect God's image. And God gives the job description here to the first man in Genesis. What is his job description? Simply to care for God's temple, to tend to the garden, steward God's creation. That was our, that, that is still our job description. What occurs in Genesis 3 is that the first creature to sin, Satan, he was a fallen angel, a one who sinned against God and was cast out of heaven to this place. And in the form of the serpent, Satan deceives the first man and the first woman. He manipulates these creatures of the Imago Dei to think of themselves as their own creators, to be like God. That's the problem. How many of us think that we are our own gods, that we determine our own destinies, that we control all that we want to control? That is the first sin. That is the cause of our fall. And it was a manipulated lie from Satan himself, the first one to fall, who then takes man and pulls him down with him. 
Now, the result is a separation of relationship between God the Creator and man the created results in a broken trust. You ever had someone break your trust? You can forgive them, and we often do, yet trust takes time to rebuild. I've got several family members over the years that have really harmed me. I have forgiven them. I forgave them years ago when it occurred. Yet there are still bonds of trust that need to be rebuilt. The lie here that Satan brings in is that we as God's created people and His image that we can obtain our own knowledge and wisdom. And this, what this does, this breaks the bond between the creator and the created. What was made good by God, this, the garden of Eden and, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that's mentioned in Genesis chapter two, the, all that God has made good is the bond between us. Yet what does man do? We break the bond. And that's the situation we're in. So the curse that God speaks in Genesis chapter 3, this curse is spoken by God first, you know, beginning in verse uh, 13 and 14. This is where the, the curses now are being proclaimed by a holy and righteous God. He has no other recourse because of how holy and good and righteous he is. He must cast a curse upon the fallen. He must. He must. If he did not, he would not be holy. He would not be righteous. It's not that God is bound by something he does not want to do. He must do this because of his holiness and his righteousness. Yet notice what he says here. This curse is spoken by God over the serpent. The serpent is not made in the Imago Dei. He speaks a curse over the woman who is actually given the task of bearing children in the Imago Dei. Ladies, have you pondered that role that God has given you? Giving birth, you are giving birth to the image of God. What a gift. Wow. Then the curse also comes to the man, Adam, who is really the first made in the image of God. What was once good, we see here, is now corrupt. And what we see here is that the free will choice of the first man and the first woman, they willingly did this. They exchanged God's presence with the voice of Satan, the deceiver, by their own choice. And in such, by doing that, they set themselves into what has been called a bondage of the will. By their own will, they chose the voice of Satan over the presence of God, and we carry the same suffering that they initiated. We are bound in our will. We do not choose what is good anymore. And that's the problem. All who bear Adam's image now carry this curse what is called the original sin. The doctrine of the original sin is here. There is no hope in our own will. There is no hope in our choices. God cursed the seeds of the serpent, and he curses the seeds of man in Genesis 3, verses 14 through 20. And that's where we're at today. 
But in the midst of this curse is the first Christmas sermon. I don't want us to miss this. In the midst of this curse is the first Christmas sermon. The first promise of hope in the midst of the fall. Isn't that amazing? In God's righteousness and his holiness, he condemns, yet in the same breath, he gives hope in the condemnation. That is the gospel. Wow. In the midst of this, God's promise of hope is clear. A seed would come that will crush the head of the serpent who will return the original Adam to his place of steward of God's image and as steward over the reflection of God's glory in this created place of theater. That's what's happening here. So the story of Christmas does not begin in Matthew and in Luke about Christ's miraculous birth. Christmas begins here in Genesis chapter 3 during the curse of from God upon these rebellious creatures of His. That is where Christmas begins. Y'all getting it? Now, some of you may say, now how do I do this when I read the Christmas story to my children on Christmas morning? Don't worry about it. Just read the, read, read Luke chapter two. That's, that's great. Don't worry about this to the kids. Just, let's just understand where the gospel begins here, okay? So when we look at Genesis chapter three, beginning in verse, when we look at this curse, let's look at the curse of verse 14 and 15 to the serpent. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. How many of us to this day cringe every time we see a snake? I'm the biggest baby when I see a snake coming through. Now, I'll do my best to kill it. But, oh, man, it terrifies me to no end when I see a snake. Why? Rightly so. Snakes have no They have no glory. They're just evil. (laughs) Now they eat a lot of snake, they eat a lot of pests and things. Great. They have a, they still serve a purpose, but the, the enmity between man and a snake is right here. It's, it's in our, it's in the spiritual DNA. Okay. That's why it's there. God curses the snake and says, you will crawl or curses the serpent. You will, you will crawl on your belly and you'll eat dust the rest of your life. And in verse 15, here, right here, verse 15, if you're taking notes, and if you have not circled this one verse in your Bible, do so with great big exclamation marks. This is the first mention of the gospel. I will, this is God speaking. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Now listen to this. Speaking of the offspring, He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's the gospel. Jesus Christ was promised right here that he would crush the head of the serpent who deceived humanity and caused us to separate from our holy and righteous creator. And God even says in the curse, to the serpent, there will be an offspring who comes, a seed who will come, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. 
That mark of the heel is the mark of the serpent biting the heel of Satan or of Jesus himself as he crushes his head. Our Savior Jesus Christ dies on the cross and Satan thinks, aha, I've got him. It's like the strike of the serpent upon Jesus' foot. Yet he doesn't realize that that same foot is about to crush his skull. And that's the curse. At the same time, it's the blessing. You see that? This is the first Christmas sermon. Jesus is coming. God promised here that he will send a redeemer to fix this problem. The curse of the serpent includes hope of the offspring, or some translations, the seed. It has often been called that this is the introduction of the battle of the seeds, the seeds of serpent, of the serpent and the seeds of man and the woman. There is a constant battle between those who are made in God's image and those who live in evil. This is the constant eternal battle that Jesus Christ himself fixes. He conquers it. The offspring will crush the serpent's head. That's the first prophecy of Christmas. Martin Luther says here about Genesis 3.15, he says, because God is threatening in general when he says her seed or her offspring, he is mocking Satan and making him afraid of all women. Ladies, you've got something up on the snake. You can crush his head because you have been given not only the curse or the pain of childbirth, but the blessing of the seed is coming to crush the evil that is here. Can you imagine Eve, the first mother of all? Of course, she's suffering a curse for the sin, yet in the same time, she's receiving God's promise. You'll have pain and childbearing, but that pain will bring hope and redemption. We're going to see that here as we walk through the New Testament here in a second. Eve's punishment brings her hope. I mean, despite Eve's sin, she keeps the blessing of motherhood and remains with Adam. But she has the promise that from her will eventually come the Redeemer who will crush the head of the serpent. In the midst of that struggle, ladies, I've never been pregnant. I'm sorry. I don't under, I cannot empathize with that process. Yet I also see the pain and the struggle that women go through. Yet there is thin, in, mixed in with that. Would you read? There's a mix of also joy in that pain. It starts here. Now, traditional Catholic theology will see Mary as the defeater of Satan. They'll look to this text and say, this is talking of Mary someday who will defeat Satan. But Protestant thinking universally sees this verse that it's more focused on Christ than it is the eventual Mary, the mother of Christ. Now, if you'll flip over with me to Galatians chapter 3, let's see where this also comes into play. Galatians chapter 3. The Apostle Paul helps us see where this comes from as well. Galatians chapter 3, let's begin in verse 16. Paul speaking to the church in Galatia says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. 
Notice here if you're underlining this. This is the words of Paul. It does not say, and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, singular, who is Christ. You see how Paul helps us see this? This is the what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring, singular, should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. What is Paul speaking about here? He's talking about not only Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God's curse upon the serpent and the judgment of Eve, but also the promise in that curse. He's also referring to the Abrahamic covenant and the Abrahamic promise in Genesis chapter 12, when God tells Abraham, from your offspring will come the promised one. So you can see it begins, that the first Christmas story begins in Genesis 3 at the fall, but it's going to be a continuing theme throughout all of Scripture. We don't focus on the Christmas story just at December. We focus on the Christmas story as the core of the gospel. That is all the way through the pages of the Bible from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And so let's take a look here and see what they're saying. What, what Paul is arguing is that Jesus is the focus of the covenant that God makes with Abraham when he speaks about Abraham's offspring, singular. He also talks about Jesus here as the promised salvation through Eve's childbearing in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the seed or the offspring. Notice it's not plural, it's singular. These are the words of Paul. He's making the point. It's the offspring singular, one. Not many offsprings, but there is one promised Redeemer to come. Now, what we also see here is that the prophets, what Paul says here um, in verses uh, in verse 19 and following, when he's talking about the law, the law was necessary until Christ came. So the law comes from Scripture, and the law includes the Mosaic law, the Mosaic covenant, but also carried through through the prophets of the Old Testament. They carry the same theme here, that there is a promised offspring and a promised seed to come. We all we see it all throughout the prophets that they also look forward with hope to one, one that God promised. Old Testament prophecies, when you don't have to turn here, if you're taking notes, take them down. Very familiar Christmas passages that reflect this same idea of the offspring to come. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and name his name or his name Emmanuel. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
Remember, see, you see the constant theme here of childbirth, children being born, but talking about the one child to come. Even in Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. And then in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. You see in the continual theme in Scripture that began as God cursed the serpent through Eve, will come one, one. And that one will crush your head, serpent. That one will pay the penalty, that price for this deception and this failure. The prophets all looked forward with hope. That's what we're seeing in all of these prophecies from Isaiah to Zephaniah to Micah. There is, there's an anticipation of the one to come. Hope. What is hope? We have to understand what hope is. In scripture, we see the idea of waiting all the time. But in our modern 21st century context, how often do we wait for anything anymore? Let's just be honest. Why are people so upset that this Christmas season you cannot go and buy what you always want to buy and have the hundreds of choices that you are used to, even though you still may have choices? It's not the hundreds. People are all upset right now because of shipping containers sitting off the coast in California because they can't get what they want. Maybe God is teaching us to wait again. But can I just share with you my perspective when I go to the stores? There's always something there. I've been in stores all around the world. And trust me, we've still got plenty. We're not going to go hungry. We're not going to go naked. We're not going to starve to death. Everything we need, we've got. And if you can't find it, somebody in the church probably has it. I've talked to a lot of women in this church. You've already got all your closets full and all your... You got stuff underneath the bed stacked up. You're all afraid that the world's coming to an end and you're taking care of your families. Somebody in this church has it if you need it. That's what I'm saying. It's all, But it's still on the shelves. We can't wait anymore, can we? That's why whenever uh, we, we, the advent of, of Amazon.com has ruined us beyond what McDonald's fast food drive throughs did. Right? We don't want to wait anymore. You know what? Amazon can no longer guarantee overnight delivery. Oh my goodness, the world's coming to an end. <laughs> you might have to wait two days for your delivery instead of one day. Y'all hearing me? Yet in Scripture, we are called to wait for the coming hope that is to come. Because when God promises, it's going to happen. Have you ever made a promise but you never gave a deadline to the promise, but you still kept your promise. 
Has anyone ever done that for you? They promised you that they would, that you would have what you need when you need it, but they never said when they would give it. But they still kept the promise. This is, this is our Father God who does this. The idea of waiting in scripture is common. When we look in Genesis, and we don't have to turn it if you don't want to, but because we're going to go through a list here. In Genesis chapter 8, when we read about Noah in the ark, and Noah had to wait for weeks when the rain stopped, Noah had to wait for the waters to recede. And even after the waters receded, he still had to wait until God said it was time to leave the ark. In Micah chapter 7, we read a prophecy uh, about waiting. A farmer sows seed and waits for the morning sun and the dew to nourish the crops. If you are, if you do any kind of gardening or any kind of planting, you know what waiting is there. You do all the work, you do all the preparation, but you do not have instant results. You must wait. This idea of waiting in Micah chapter 7, this waiting like a farmer waits for the seed to grow, it's really kind of like a state of tension, a, a, a tense moment waiting for the tension to release. It's like a cord pulled tight waiting for the rope to relax. You ever feel that while you're waiting? You ever feel that tension in your soul? And you're just waiting for that tension of the rope to relax. That's another way of waiting. That's what we have to deal with. But the Apostle Peter also in 1 Peter chapter 1 speaks about a living hope in the language of waiting. We can become a new person in Christ even in this living hope. There may even be a process of waiting for this new, this newness in us to come. New Christians fall into this all the time. They hear the gospel and they respond to the hope that is preached through Christ and they expect an instant change. Yet it's a process more than it is an instant transformation, isn't it? Waiting for us to become like Christ, that's also a waiting. Yet Christ is faithful. The Holy Spirit is there transforming us Every single day. So biblical hope here. This idea of hope that is spoken of in this first gospel message, this first Christmas story in Genesis 3 that is carried through the prophets, through the New Testament apostles. It all looks back to Christ. It looks forward to Christ. It also looks back to Christ now. It even looks forward for our context to the return of Christ yet to come. And we're looking for a glorious future. We are looking for Christ's return and a glorious return, just like the, the ancient patriarchs of old and the prophets of old looked forward to a glorious future of someday there would be a Savior. Y'all have something that you're looking forward to right now? I pray it's Christ and His glorious return. I pray it may be what something that God has promised you in your life that He is calling you to. You may be in a season of waiting and you have this tension in that waiting and you have a hope that one day God will answer His promise. But we have to understand what biblical hope is in contrast to what our secular idea of hope is. 
A secular idea of hope is more, really more defined as optimism. It's choosing to see in different situations how circumstances can work out for the best. Maybe we're just hoping for the best outcome. Is that what you're thinking? I don't know. I just hope, I just hope we get through this. You ever have that attitude? Life is just throwing everything at you and you're just hoping you can get through. <laughs> Let's just hope we survive. That's not biblical hope. Here's biblical hope. Biblical hope is waiting with eagerness, waiting with anticipation, not for an outcome, but for a person. It's not waiting for an outcome. It's not waiting for God to do something miraculous in your life. That's not biblical hope. Biblical hope is anticipating a person. God is not some magical wish maker to give you an outcome to your circumstances. God is a creator God who loves us, who is personable. The relationship we have between the created and the creator is being restored in Christ. We have hope and anticipation for a person, this one offspring that God himself said would come. God is faithful and he gives hope for a future. And along the way, he keeps his promises and he's never let us down. Hope is not focused on circumstances. Hope is focused on the promise of God that He will love us and that He will restore us. So this first Sunday of Advent that's leading now into four weeks of anticipation, what are you, Lord, are you looking forward to? That's what we have to understand today, this first Sunday of Advent, this, this focus of hope that God has given us in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when he promises that a seed will come, an offspring of the woman will come and will crush the serpent. What are we looking forward to? Is there an eagerness in your heart, in your thinking during this next four weeks? Or are you just hoping that we can get through Christmas and survive another day? Are you hoping that we can get to the end of the year? Or are you looking forward to Christ himself and the joy that he brings and that promised restoration that we all desire? You may be here and think, you know, Pastor, you're speaking good, fancy words here, but I don't desire to be transformed. Everything's going great with me right now. Hallelujah. I don't need God. I don't need to look forward to a hope. I don't need any of that stuff. I want to pray that the Lord would maybe speak and reveal to you exactly where you are in relationship to Him. Because the lie of the serpent was this. You can be your own God. You don't need the Creator. And if we're in that state where we have deceived ourselves that we don't need the Creator God, we're in the control of the serpent. We're in the control of the deceiver. 
But if we wake up to the reality, if God through his spirit wakes us up to the reality of how desperate we are in need for him, that's a great place to be. Because <laughs> once we realize where we are in relationship to our holy God, we then look forward with hope to the promise that he has given. That's the season we're in. Amen? As Nathan comes, and we're going to close with a time of singing. I want to challenge us all, and this is even for me. Where is, where is our hope? Well, first of all, do we hope? <laughs> do we have hope? Or are we so desperate that we're just not looking forward to tomorrow at all? Do we have a hope that our Savior, Jesus Christ, will come back again? Do we have a hope that we are going to celebrate this month and celebrate the fact that our salvation is here? Is that what we're looking forward to? Come on, Baptist, you can say amen to that one. Amen. Amen. Let me close this in prayer. Father God, we praise you. As even in the very beginning of your word, you did speak a curse, a curse that resulted from our failures. We brought it upon ourselves. But Lord, your, your mercy and your kindness is even in that curse that you would restore Adam and all of his descendants back to exactly where they need to be and then even better. And Lord, we look forward to that, that future hope that, that when that is finally completed, you've begun the process through your son, Jesus Christ. The serpent's head is crushed. And the bondage of our sin is no longer entrapping us. You have given us a future hope of your son returning and establishing an eternal kingdom. And you've given us that promise that we'll be a part of it. And so, God, I pray as we close in our worship today that you would be pleased with us. But, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would also speak truthfully to us to, to, to cause us to remember your faithfulness, to cause us to look forward with hope that there is a glorious future. Use this season of Advent, Father, for your glory in us so that we can be the stewards that you've made us to be. We thank you for that gift. In Jesus' name, amen.